Today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel 8, uh, 4 to 22a. Uh, this can be found on your, uh, in your pew Bibles on page 195. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will, be, will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. May God bless the reading of his word. I will Okay, well, we've been in this sermon series since early September. Technology is a wonderful thing when it works. It may not be the technology, it may be the operator. I mean, me, not the guy in the back. Okay, Derek, you got the job to do. Okay, here we go. Thank you. Okay, so we've been working on this since the beginning of September. And... There's a risk, you know, that you're going to lose track of where we're going. So before we start into today's passage, we're going to back up and review. Now, there's a fair bit of detail, but it really comes back to the same four ideas, three or four ideas. So you just got to know where we are in the process. So we start out, the Bible starts out. Well, well, for those of you who are just visiting, or or don't get me regularly, what we're looking at is a survey of the entire of the Bible. Particularly, uh, well, from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. There's only one storyline that goes the entire scope of the Bible. 
It starts in Genesis 1 and 2 with the story of creation. And what we have there is a portrait of the world as God created it. It was idyllic. And in, within Eden, you have the presence of God. And then you have three blessings within Eden. God blesses Adam and Eve and says, multiply and fill the earth. God gives him a place to call home. It was the garden. A place to call home and a garden to tend. He gives them meaningful work and a place of their own. And then this is to be the destiny of all people. Living in this idyllic location with God, with harmony within their families, as they reproduce and spread through all the earth, as the blessing of God goes with them, and is to encompass all people. But we get only two chapters of that. And then by Genesis 3, what we have is the fall. And every one of these blessings is damaged or removed. Instead of the presence of God, we now have distance from God. God casts Adam and Eve out of the garden, creating a distance between him and them. Instead of them multiplying and fill the earth, the first thing that happens is husband and wife are at odds, and brother kills brother. So you have a, a discord within the family. Instead of a place to call their own, they're cast out of Eden into what you could say is the wilderness east of Eden. And instead of this being a blessing on all people, the fall becomes a curse on all people. Now, all of this has occurred within the first three chapters of Genesis. And it sets up the problem that God will spend the rest of the Bible solving. Now, a little caveat. God's powerful. He's also loving. He's efficient. He doesn't need the rest of the Bible to solve this problem. He didn't create it in the first place. And theoretically, he could have solved it in just a couple of chapters. But because fallen human beings are involved, the story takes a long time to unwind. And the first step of the restoration comes with Abraham. And Abraham, all of the promises to Abraham counter the effects of the fall. So instead of distance from God, what did, what did God promise Abraham? Just this one man, that he would be with him. So a restoration of the presence of God. He promised Abraham descendants innumerable. Just like he had told Adam and Eve, multiply and spread throughout the earth. Now he blesses Abraham and says, you'll have descendants, too many to count. He promised Abraham's descendants a land. They had lost Eden, but he promised them in the future a land to call their own. And all people had been affected by the fall. And God promises Abraham that through him, all people, all nations will be blessed. So you see, Abraham is the solution to the fall and the restoration of creation. And that comes in Genesis 12, and then the rest of the Old Testament is the unfolding of these promises to Abraham. So we see in the book of Genesis that God blesses Abraham with innumerable descendants, as he promised. And by the end of Genesis, by the beginning of Exodus, Abraham has innumerable descendants. And then God promises Abraham, had promised Abraham a land. And that's what Exodus begins. But Exodus only gives us the first stage of that. Exodus, but, but by the time we get to Exodus, Egypt, Israel is, is captive in Egypt. And the first stage is to pull them out of Egypt. And God does that. 
And then God brings something new into the story now. God had promised him all these blessings. Uh, but these blessings come in a relationship with him. And now he tells them that what the reciprocation, this is not how to earn God's favor, but this is, this is the nature of relationship. Is If we're in a relationship with somebody, it's not only them doing things for us, but it's us responding. And, and how is Israel to respond? God takes Israel out of Egypt. He saved them. He gave them innumerable descendants. He gave them a land. He brought them out of slavery. And he says, okay, now we're going to have a relationship, and here's what your commitments are. Here's what your obligations are under this relationship. The conditions of the relationship, really too, really easy, well, really too, really simple to understand. First, they're to obey him. And Exodus 16 and 24, most of you know the Ten Commandments, or know of the Ten Commandments. That's part of this. We're to live for God. And the other thing we're to do is to worship God. And that's the rest of the book of Exodus talks about how to worship God. And then he develops that further in the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus has only two ideas in it. Obey God and then worship God. And then he develops that further. In the book of Numbers, we have he, God goes back to the land promise. Remember, they've been in the wilderness. And God says, okay, now I'm going to take you into the land. He set out these conditions and said, now, now you understand all this. Now we have a relationship. I'm going to take you in the land. And, and Israel says... Mm, no. There's giants in that land. They're going to kill us. We don't trust you to take us there. We don't think you're trustworthy or powerful, one or the other. Either you don't love us enough or you're not powerful enough. And they say no. And so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then God says, and to a whole new generation, God says, look, I gave the promise to your forefathers and they turned it down. Now I give this promise to you, their children. Do you want it? If you want it, here's the conditions. And in Deuteronomy, he repeats what he had told them in Leviticus, which repeated what he had told them in Exodus. Here's the conditions if you want them, if you want this new land and you want this relationship with me. And so they accept the conditions, and then Joshua continues the story, the land part three story, where God brings them into the land. And now here, two of the three promises that Abraham have fulfilled. Innumerable people. Israel's a huge number, and they have their own land. We're almost back to Eden, God's people in God's place. And then, all of this has happened because they had leaders. Adam and Eve created the problem. Abraham, the patriarch, helped revive Israel. Then Moses led them out of Egypt into the land. Then Joshua led them into the land. So leaders have been crucial. The populace, the, the, the masses of Israel, have this inevitable tendency to wander away from God. So it's really been the leaders who've been crucial. So now that Joshua has died, who's going to replace him? So that Israel can live in this land as the people of God in obedience and worship. And so the narrative now shifts from the promises and the conditions, from the, from the descendants in the land and the conditions of obedience and worship. Now the narrative, biblical narrative, shifts to who's going to help these people stay faithful to God. Because they can stay in the land only if they're faithful and they can't do it on their own. 
Who's going to help them do this? Who's going to take Moses' place? Who's going to take Joshua's place? Who's going to do it for them? And so the book of Judges tells us a whole series of men step up. And one, two women, one woman. Men and women who step up to lead Israel and help them stay faithful to God. And that's where we come when we begin the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel is the last of the judges. And that's where our reading takes up today. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8, because with this background we'll begin. It takes us up to who's going to lead Israel, help them stay faithful to God, help them keep these conditions that God has required if they're to stay in the land and if they're to be his people. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. Don't get any ideas. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. So what happens here at this point of Samuel is, just like Eli, Samuel led the people faithfully, like Eli had. But then Eli's sons were corrupt and Samuel took over. Now Samuel's sons are corrupt. And the people say, we want a new leader. We want a new form of government altogether. We don't want judges anymore. What they said was, we want a king. We want a monarchy. We want a continuous form of government, not regional judges that keep changing over. And so the rest of Samuel, and then Kings, and then Chronicles, is all about the shift in government from having judges to having monarchy. What's the difference, judges and monarchy? See, judges are rotate, they're occasional, they're ad hoc. They only come up as there's a crisis. And judges are local, regional, you could say in the U.S. environment, like state governors versus a nationwide monarchy. And Israel takes this opportunity because Samuel's sons are corrupt. Instead of saying, we want a new judge, they say, we want a king's, we want a monarchy. Now here's the first thing we want to pick up from this whole book. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, they're in the Bible. Right? But they're not about what we call religion. They are about what we call politics. Oh, say, since Europe in the 1700s, we've been trying to differentiate politics from religion. The European experiment tried to do that. The American experiment has tried to do that. But traditionally, society has seen that, well, society functions more harmoniously if religion is part of politics. We're not comfortable with that notion. So we think, well, the Bible's about religion. And then we further complicated the problem by saying the, the Bible is about my religion, my relationship with God. So we turn the Bible into me and God. Now, the Bible's got that. But the Bible is really about, the Old Testament is really about Israel, the nation, and God. And it's about religion and politics, not just about religion. Now, this is not what we're used to in our tradition. And there's a couple of reasons why not. 
First of all, a lot of us, not all of us, are Chinese. And given the history, the violent history of government interactions in China, there's an, a slogan in Chinese, I only know the English version of it is, that there's two places a man never willingly goes. You don't go to the gates of hell, and you don't go to the gates of the government official, or the office of the government official. If the, the less the government knows about you, the safer you are. Fly beneath the radar. There's a second reason we're uncomfortable with this. is because we're like an evangelical church. We're about preaching the gospel, getting people saved. I started out as a young believer. I'd become a Christian, and, and, and it made a change in my life. All I wanted to do was study about the Bible. I had to go to university. I figured I'd go to a Christian school, study the Bible. My parents were a little anxious. They weren't Christians. They didn't know if this was a passing phase. You know, teenagers do this thing. And so they wanted me to continue with my plans for university. They figured if I went to a second-tier university, I could always go down into a third-tier Bible college. But if I started out at a third-tier Bible college, I might not get accepted again into a university. So I went and studied international affairs, politics in D.C. for a year. And I thought, oh, this is useless, you know. Henry Kissinger at the time was negotiating with the North Vietnamese about the future of South Vietnam and the South Vietnamese were not part of that treaty. And in 72, the treaty was signed and you knew it wasn't, it was just a useless piece of paper. So America could sneak out of the Vietnam War with some semblance of dignity left and the North Vietnamese weren't going to observe it and you knew South Vietnam was going to fall and there was going to be a, and I thought, Kissinger, I would never get to that level in my career. Kissinger, at the height of his career, was engaging in an artifice that was useless and destructive to millions of lives. I thought, I can't give my life to this. And my parents were willing. I did what they asked for one year, and I transferred to Bible college, and then there you go. Here it is. Here I am today. So we've got this disparity within evangelical thinking between faith salvation, and politics. As if somehow the politics is... You know, by the way, what I'm saying about that story was it was a misunderstanding of the role of politics and faith. You know, we're, we have a tradition what we call pietism. It's all about me, and it's all about my relationship with God, and it's all about people getting people saved. But, you know, we're in the midst of this story of salvation history from the beginning to the end. And what is it all about? It's not just about getting people saved. We want to do that. God set up a beautiful, pristine world and a society. And it's about restoring God's beautiful, pristine world and his society. We don't leave politics to the devil or the secularists. If God was only about personal salvation, we would not have the book of, gee, anything, really. We wouldn't have the book of Numbers. We wouldn't have Deuteronomy. We certainly wouldn't have. If God was only about religion, we would not have the book of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. That we wouldn't have a whole stretch of the Old Testament, the part that we don't like to read, would not exist if God didn't care about politics. Now, I think there's actually a third reason why we're reluctant to talk about politics. is because we've been burned. Recently, we've been burned. Not recently for you, but recently for me. You know, Jimmy Carter did something really bold. 
And he, he talked about being born again, and, and the, the press didn't hear anything about, when he was running for election, and, and the press didn't know anything about born again. What's this? You know, Chuck Colson in the book Born Again, book title, and Chuck Colson was famous or notorious or infamous. So, so people, then the press got, born again, what's this? And then Jimmy Carter says, somebody asks him, and he says, yeah, I'm born again. And, oh, you got a Republican born again and a Democrat born, what's going on? So the press started blowing this, you know, a lot of attention. Now, there's no indication that Jimmy Carter tried to use it to get votes. I, I, you know, I, I was alive, you know. I followed the election then. I, I don't think he tried to use it. And he was genuinely born again. So, but a lot of evangelicals thought, it's just like if we had a Muslim running for president, you can expect a lot of Muslims would be thrilled about this, get respectability, vote for the guy. Oh, if we have a Mormon run for president, you can, well, no, if we have a Catholic run for president, you can expect a lot of Catholics, and then if we have a Mormon run for president, you can expect a lot of Mormons will vote for the Mormon, like the Catholics vote to the Catholic, you know, and evangelicals vote for the evangelicals. And then Jimmy Carter took office, and he wasn't as conservative as a lot of the Christians that voted for him, and they felt like they got burned. I don't think they got burned, they just didn't pay attention. But we did get burned, you see. Because Ronald Reagan, no indication he was an evangelical. But he'd go before the prayer breakfast and said, well, I know you can't endorse me, but I endorse you. And he knew how to, he knew that it was easier to win election if he sidled up to the evangelicals. And a lot of conservatives who were evangelicals thought, oh, great, you know, we'll use Reagan to get our agenda. And that didn't work out so well. Because there really weren't a lot of evangelicals in Reagan's White House. And then George W. Bush is also evangelical. Only he was evangelical with a difference because he actually staffed much of the White House with evangelicals. And we got really kind of disappointed with some of the things that, as a result of that. So basically what we found is that, even, that, that, that politics is, is not the cure-all. And so we got burned and I think we're pulling back too far. So whether you are inclined to be Democrat and Republican is immaterial to what the scripture is saying here. Or, or Libertarian, or uh, Green Party, whatever party you're part of. It, it, the point is, if God differentiated between politics and religion, much of the Bible, including today's passage, would not exist. There is a difference between them, but it's not like God is only care, cares about our private, personal, religious lives. He cares about the politics of America. That's the first lesson we learn from the fact that this even exists. That we, from the, the fact that this chapter of this book even exists. Okay, the second lesson, moving on. Take a look at chapter verse well chapter eight verses four and five. All the elders gathered together, they came to Samuel at Ramah, they said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Their complaint against the government in their day, their complaint against Samuel's sons, is that Samuel's sons were corrupt. Let's think about this for just a minute. You know, it creates a problem that they pose the wrong solution to. And, and the Bible disputes their solution, but the Bible accepts their analysis of the problem. Corrupt government 
is a problem. Eli's sons were corrupt. So what happened? God killed Eli's sons. God killed Eli, and God brought an end to their lineage. And Samuel started up. Samuel's sons were corrupt. And what happens is God removes leadership from them. God cares about politics. He cares about clean politics. He cares about corruption in politics. Now, this does not suggest that he's going to kill all corrupt politicians. And I'm not going to make a joke about what would happen to the Congress if that happened. I'll just insinuate. But, no, seriously. But think about corruption for a moment. God cares about this, corruption in politics. Now, let me throw out an example that has nothing to do with us, most of us. It does have something to do with some of us. Have you noticed that whenever China wants to change leadership, it puts the former leaders on trial for corruption? Either before or after, you know, changes leadership, it puts them up on trial for corruption. Now, I don't follow this closely, but it seems to me that corruption is endemic in China, and much of Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia. So you have to, in order to do business, you have to kind of do things under the table. So anyone could be grabbed for corruption. So it seems to me that the charges of corruption are generally bogus, that the real issue is power struggle. And aren't you glad, most of you, that we don't live in China so that our government's not corrupt? And if those of you who do live in China now, I will, you'll hear my apology. Uh, Joe Biden estimates that the next presidential election will cost $2 billion. Now, I calculated the number of votes, or I added up the number of votes in the, that were cast in the previous presidential election, and it was about 127 million votes. That comes down to $16 per vote. Now, what would you rather do? Have these candidates spend billions of dollars on TV ads or simply meet you at the polling station and offer you $16 and you just take the 16 bucks and vote for who you want to vote for? Where, you know, running ads is not the corrupt part. Well, the ads are typically deceitful, right? No opponent would ever agree with the ad that was run against him. But why, where does this $2 billion come from? It really doesn't come from having a computer website where people like you and me can click on $10 and then it accumulates. It comes from major firms. In oh, 2008, there was a court case, Citizens United, against the FEC to remove the limits on, on campaign spending by PACs. And then you have the super PACs arose out of that. And uh, Stephen Colbert's whole satire on the super PACs. You can pour millions and millions of dollars into the election. And that's where the $2 billion comes from. Wealthy corporations, a few wealthy industries, pouring millions of dollars into the election and you get up to $2 billion and you can win. Now here's where the corruption comes in. Right? Why do you think they're paying $10 million, $20 million to get a candidate into office? 
Why do you think they're trying so hard? So they can get favorable legislation through their lobbyists. Our system is fundamentally corrupt. The only difference is we've legislated it, which makes it more expensive. Generally in Asia, if you deal with low-level functionaries, you can get what you want for a little bit of money. In the U.S., if you want to get what you want, the favorable legislation, tax breaks for your corporation and your industry, you've got to pay millions of dollars. There's an argument to be made for the Asian form of corruption. Not only is it cheaper, it also gets money into the hands of the populace. God cares about corruption. Verse 6, the people said, give us a king to lead us. And this displeased Samuel. Not a surprise, he's the... He's the judge, and they say, well, we don't want another judge, we want a king. So he prays to the Lord, and the Lord said to him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. And the a big section of the, the next couple of chapters goes into a discussion or analysis of which form of government is better. Is government by judgeship better than government by monarchy? It's part of the same argument that was going on in the Civil War time prior to the Civil War. Do we want states' rights loosely collected in a confederation? Or do we want a strong federal government and states have a secondary role to play? Which should be stronger? Centralized government, federal, or state government, distributed? This is a perfectly legitimate debate. We know it's legitimate because First Samuel engages in it. Which is the better form of government? Judges, regional, Ad hoc or a standing government, centralized government, with a standing bureaucracy and a standing army? Which is better? That's the debate that goes on in these chapters, the next, say, eight, seven or eight chapters. We have other related debates more now. Which is the better way to care, take care of poor people, disenfranchised people? Through a capitalistic system where work for benefits or through a socialistic system, where the government gives benefits to the poor. Which is better? It's a debate we have. Uh, ah, which is better? To have a strong executive or a strong legislature? Or which is, should be stronger? Do you realize that Vietnam, no matter how long we fought there, never became a war? It was never a war? Because Congress never declared it? Do you realize that any time the, the U.S. president launches an election, we have a debate over whether he's, I mean, not election, whether he launches an invasion, we have a debate over whether he's authorized, our government, federal government has a debate over whether he's authorized to launch an invasion or not? Because the legislature is supposed to pass war resolutions? So what we do instead is the president says it's not a war. It just involves soldiers, tanks, and guns, and planes. He just doesn't call it a war and then he can do it. These are legitimate debates that we should care about. I mean, First Samuel assumes we're going to care about which is better, judgeship or monarchy? A strong legislature or a strong executive branch? Strong states' rights or strong federal government? 3, 7, and 8. The Lord told, the Lord responded to uh, Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. 
they've done, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day. They're forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them. God kind of pats Samuel on the shoulder and says, Look, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Why do they want a monarchy rather than judgeship? Here's the big difference from a practical viewpoint. Judges arise only in time of crisis. A crisis comes, the people suffer, they cry out to God, and then they have to hope. They have to hope that God will answer and give them a judge. That some leader will rise from their midst and lead them in victory. They have to sit there uncertain whether God's going to answer. What's the key to a king? A king has a standing army. A king has a standing bureaucracy. You have a problem. Then your king fights their king. Your, your army fights their army. You don't need to trust God. And so when they ask to be, have the judges replaced by king, by, to replace the judges with monarchy, God says, it's not you they've rejected. It's me as their king. God says, they don't want to rely on me. They don't want to put their hopes in me saving them. They want to have a king who will always be in office, always have an army, and who can always stand. This is a reminder to us about who do we trust in as Christians and Americans. As, Amer- as Christians who are Americans, do, what do we trust in? Do we trust in our superpower status? Do we trust in our aircraft carriers? Do we trust in our drones? Do we trust in our arms industry, leading exporter of arms in the world? Do we trust in our arms industry or do we trust in God? Do you know that little phrase we have on our coins, in God we trust? Do you know when that came on our coins? 1860s. The North put it on their coins to say that God is on our side versus the South in the Civil War. You know that phrase that we have on our paper money that says, in God we trust? You know where that came from? 1950s. We moved it from our coins to our paper money because God's on our side against these Russians, these Soviets. You could say, that our money is blasphemous. That, that we, people don't really trust in God. But the question is for us. What do we trust in? in our, as our government interacts with other governments around the world, as we uh, interact with uh, radicals, what do we trust in? Who determines our future? God or our army? Continuing on in verse 9. Now listen to them, God says to Samuel. Give them what they want. Listen to them, but warn them solemnly. And let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Let them know what the king is going to do. And then he goes on and describes what the king is going to do. What's the king going to do? First of all, the king is going to take your sons and make them serve his chariots and horses. They will run in front of his chariots. They'll go to war for him. He'll assign them to be commanders of thousands. and Others will plow his ground and reap his harvest. Others will make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. They'll join his war machine. And then in verse 14, He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves. He will give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage. What is God telling Samuel to warn the people? You want a strong central government? What are you going to have? 
You're going to have a conscription for the army, a draft, as we had during Vietnam, and you're going to have taxes. There's a downside. Now, this passage legitimizes, you know there were draft riots during the Civil War? Do you know there were draft riots during Vietnam? Well, you know about the Vietnam War. This passage legitimizes draft protests. This passage legitimizes the resentment we will all feel between now and April 15th, or that we've already felt, about paying our taxes. This is what governments do to you. Now, we get benefits in exchange for all of this. All I'm trying to illustrate is that this passage is not just about our private religious lives. The Bible talks about things like war and drafting soldiers for war and taxing to pay for war. This is part of God's concerns. And it's a reasonably, it's a, a totally legitimate part of our concern as we can care about God. Now, the chapters go on. There's seven chapters even more on this. And the devotionals this week will be reflecting on it. Mainly what I'm trying to do to introduce you to today is not the subpoints, but the main idea is this. God cares about more than our private religious lives and our salvation. And he invites us to care about more. He invites us to care about politics. He invites us, some of us, you know, we have this, this focus for the church for the next five years. He invites some of us to give our careers to politics, to do it the way it should be done. He invites all of us to engage, to vote. He invites all of us to care about the issues. Not in spite of us being Christians who care about the Bible, but because we're Christians who care about the Bible. I want to end today with um, one final quote from 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. We read this. Now here is the king you've chosen. They appoint Saul and God. Samuel brings him before the people. The, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has answered your prayer. The Lord has done what you wanted. The Lord has set a king over you. But what's the solution for the future? Will this king bring them safety? Will he bring them prosperity? Will he bring them integrity? Verse 14. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord, good. It will go well for you. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you, as it was for your ancestors. While the biblical text invites us, it exemplifies for us what it is to engage in politics, it ends with a warning that no politics, no political party, no candidate is ever the decisive difference in our lives, in our world, and in our world's relationship with God. The decisive difference is this, not the kind of government they have, not the leader they have. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him. So we engage in politics, not to save the world, but to make a small difference, and because it's a legitimate part of being God's people in God's world. 
We engage in politics not to save the world because no political party, no king, no dictator, no president, no prime minister will ever save the world. That will occur as we worship and serve the God who sent his son to die for us. We engage in politics, but we prioritize God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that your word would work by your spirit in our lives, that our engagement with our world might deepen and broaden, that we might be your people doing your work, both inside the church and inside society. We ask you to guide us by your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.